This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Hello, and thank you for sharing part of your day with us. I'm Leanne Castellino, and this is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. Evidence-based research, lived experience, food for thought on your parenting journey. We strive to bring you those perspectives and more each week on this show. The latest numbers from Statistics Canada released in 2020 show that there are almost 8 million Canadians who act as caregivers for family members and friends. Of that number, about 13% perform caregiving duties for their spouse or partner. And many within that group are caregivers while also raising their own children. That is the story of our guest today. Her husband, Bruce Wood, was suddenly diagnosed with young-onset Alzheimer's, also known as early-onset Alzheimer's, in 2016 at the age of 56. Everything changed in an instant for Bruce, his wife Lisa, and her two sons. Lisa Raitt is a former Member of Parliament, having served as Deputy Leader of the Opposition in the Stephen Harper government for two years until 2019. She is currently Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking at the CIBC. During a portion of her 11-year political career, she grappled with her husband's dementia and his often violent behavior as a result, all while being a mom. Lisa Wright joins us from her home in Moffat, Ontario. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for having me, Leanne. I appreciate it. First and foremost, I'd like to ask you, how is Bruce doing today? Well, uh, to give you the most up-to-date information, uh, Baycrest Hospital, where Bruce has been since January of this year, actually just lightened their restrictions on visitation. So up until now, I've only been able to visit Bruce once a week for a set period of time at two time intervals during the day, either 10 o'clock to 11.30 or 1.30 to 3 o'clock. As of this week, I can now visit him anytime between the hours of 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. any day of the week, as long as I, as long as I give them notice, and I'm allowed to see his room. Before we were meeting in a conference room that was actually part of the ward, but very impersonal and and very um, stilted in terms of of meeting up. I got to see his room for the first time yesterday when I went to visit him, and. Um, he was very proud of it. And it was just nice to see him in a more relaxed area as opposed to in a very formal meeting room or a conference room. So he was good yesterday. I did hear from the nurse, though, that earlier in the day he was having aggression and he was um, acting out. And I know noticed that when we were uh, it was dark out and the windows were reflective and he looked out and he saw his reflection and he smiled at it and pointed and shook his finger, which reminded me of the fact that he, again, is hallucinating and thinking that's a stranger. What is his prognosis as we discuss this today? <sighs> Who knows? I mean, one of the big questions I, I get and that we ask ourselves is, you know, what is the span from the time you're diagnosed until the time you lose your loved one? And for every different person, it's a different answer. They tell you that uh, somebody could go from 10 to 20 years. And Bruce is in year six right now, depending upon when you measured from. So uh, I know where he is in terms of stages. He is definitely at the beginning of the last stage, which is stage seven. He has some of those symptoms. 
And um, not all of them, though. Um, what is next, Leanne, to be honest, is my husband will lose the ability to walk. He'll lose the ability to feed himself. He will lose the ability to speak at all, as opposed to now where he has few words. And maybe the, the ability to recognize me, because right now he recognizes me. He calls me mom when he sees me first. But then later on, he, he knows that we're married. Let's go back when this all started, back roughly in 2016. What did you know about young onset Alzheimer's when Bruce was first diagnosed? Well, nothing. <laughs> I knew I was terrified of Alzheimer's in general. Um, if you use your brain for a living, and we all use our brain for a living, but if you really do rely upon your ability to recall information and speak off the cuff, which I did as a lawyer and as a politician, um, Alzheimer's is something that's absolutely terrifying. So it, it just never crossed my mind that this would be something that would be in our lives, at least at this point. And indeed, uh, the minute he got the diagnosis, I was stunned. Um, I, I tell people that I cried for the first for the first four days. And then after that, it's okay, well, I have to figure out what this is and what's going to be happening. Now, at the time, your sons were roughly 14 and 11 years old. How did you go about sharing this news with them? Well, we all knew something was wrong with Bruce. We just didn't know what it was. Um, for, for years, years prior to his diagnosis, he was very odd in terms of being angry, picking fights, being emotional. Um, forgetting everything from my birthday to whether or not the dog was let out, not knowing how to get to places, heavy reliance upon his GPS. So we knew something was going on. And when we did get the diagnosis, it was almost a relief that there was something wrong with him. And as a result, my kids were, were not surprised. We're not surprised. Um, they don't know what Alzheimer's was, but we all knew that at least at least we knew what this was and that it wasn't a case of him just not being a nice person anymore. We are in conversation with Lisa Raitt, former federal MP and mother of two, and we're talking about being a caregiver for a family member while also being a parent. You described crying for four days. How did your sons process this information? Well, they didn't see it. Uh, they were in school. They were both, um, and I would just make sure that when I was in front of them or when I was with Bruce, I was, I was uh, stiff upper lip and we're going to deal with it and, and just move on, move on with our lives. You know, nothing is impacting right now, uh, but little by little, you understand things like, well, uh, there is no cure and you're going to have a decline and maybe this drug will work. But it would, the other part too was now that I knew he had it, I was able to give him assistance in things that he was struggling to do that he was too embarrassed to tell me. And I'll give you an example. He and I traveled out to Vancouver for a conservative convention and Bruce didn't know how to get back and forth to our hotel room. He couldn't remember the floor. He couldn't figure out the door. He didn't want to get in the elevator. So I actually asked somebody to help him get back and forth when he wanted to go to places. And that, it really hit me at that point. I thought, boy, he's been really struggling with this disease for a while before it, we actually got to a diagnosis. We talk about, you know, him being 56 years old, and that's one of the um, characteristics of this particular type of Alzheimer's, young onset, is that it occurs before the age of 65. Was there anything else in particular about this form of the disease that you believe caregivers and families should be aware of? Yeah, 
one of the, and this comes from my experience talking to other families in the same situation that I'm in, usually what happens before you start having the classic symptoms of forgetfulness that goes with Alzheimer's, there's a personality change. And they go from being one way that they've been their entire lives to being a lot more cranky, a, a lot more emotional, more mood swings, self-isolating, and um, really combative verbally when you point out the fact that they haven't done something. And, and it's just a defensive kind of reaction. One, one, of my, um, one of my friends, her husband was fired because he told his boss where to go in not very pleasant terms. And that was something that happened because he had Alzheimer's, but it was prior to him being diagnosed. So once he was fired, he didn't have any healthcare benefits anymore. And th that is something that needs to be taken into consideration. If your loved one in his late 40s, early 50s starts exhibiting really bizarre behavior in the sense that there's a complete personality change and you're wondering if your marriage is, is, um, is okay, start looking for other symptoms and start looking to see how he's doing with managing the family finances. Is he paying bills on time? Is he making it to appointments? Those are the kinds of things that as I reflect, I go, yeah, he couldn't do any of that stuff. He didn't file taxes for two years and I didn't know about it. Wow. Uh, you know, you talk about Bruce currently being in, in stage seven of this disease and you have watched it in through all of its stages. Your, your sons have seen this as well. What would you say has been the most difficult part of the diagnosis and the journey for your family? The difficult part, I think, was the time when Bruce knew he had the disease and that it was fatal and he was losing all of our plans for the future and that, and it happened to him and he was angry about it. That was really tough. Um, there is a point in time in this disease where they forget that they have Alzheimer's so they don't know what it is. And we crossed over that barrier probably in, in this, in the fall of 2018. And that made life easier because prior to that, he would just be angry all the time in terms of um, knowing what was ahead of him and isolating and, and cranky. I mean, I, he's a lovely man. I, I hate the fact that everything I talk about seems to be about all these negative emotions. And we had wonderful moments of travel and fun and, and loving good times. But that part of our lives, when he was aware of the disease and what was coming and the hopelessness of it, uh, that was really difficult on our family, really, really difficult. I can't imagine what that's been like. And as a caregiver, you're seeing this, you've got a front row seat on all of this, and you're trying to manage two young boys at the same time. As a very devoted mother, I might add, um, in researching some of your background, it's been documented about how in your political career, you always came back home and made sure that your boys were your, your number one priority. So how did you go about processing all these different stages that you had to witness and experience? I think what I did was I, I informed myself on what was coming. And once Bruce, once Bruce had the diagnosis, I realized that my time with him was finite. And if he wanted to go on a one-on-one -on -one vacation with me for two weeks, then that's what we were going to do because I had a lifetime ahead of me with my kids. And I don't with my husband. So I made, instead of doing family vacations, I did at least twice a year, one-on-one. -on -one. I paid a lot of attention to my spouse. And I made those years when he could still form and build memories. Um, 
as positive and as happy as we possibly could because those were going to be his last years. And my kids got that. They understood. And I think the lesson that they learned is, you know, uh, there are things that happen to you in life that you just can't control and how you deal with it and the love you give to other people really do matter. So they didn't feel that I was ignoring them and they fully understood why we would go away. They'd never complained. I mean, they said to me, uh, one of them said to me the other day, you know, we've never really gone on a family vacation that wasn't about going to visit our grandparents in Cape Breton. And it's true. It's, um, we just didn't have the time to do it as a big family unit because of Bruce's difficulties. And um, there's no way I was going to travel other than visiting parents in Florida with, with the kids and with Bruce, who would have been way too much. Remember, if you miss any part of today's radio program, there is a podcast version available. Check out the Where Parents Talk podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. More with Lisa Raitt, former politician, caregiver, and mom, when we come back. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back, back on 105.9 The Region. Live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. We're talking about being a caregiver for a family member while raising kids in the same household. Our guest, former federal politician Lisa Raitt, was suddenly thrust into the role of caregiver when her husband Bruce was diagnosed with early-onset dementia in 2016 at the age of 56. According to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, more than 16,000 Canadians are living with this form of the disease. Lisa has been a caregiver and mom for more than five years, navigating her husband's cognitive decline, resulting spurts of violence, and keeping herself and her teenage sons safe. Lisa, can you try to describe for us what a typical day looked like for you at the height of this disease? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting choice of term you use, Leanne, the height of the disease. Uh, because, you know, it's emotional at the beginning because you know you're losing so much and you're frustrated. And then you get to the point where he can't do things for himself um, and he's forgotten about the disease. So it's not really emotional. It, it is more physical. And, and I'll use that as the, as the reference point because he became extremely unpredictable as he started having hallucinations and delusions and he would turn on me. And sometimes he didn't recognize me. He didn't know who I was. It's called Capgras syndrome. And he thought I was an imposter and kept saying, you have to leave because Lisa's going to be home soon. And that was really difficult. So my day would be wake up in the morning and figure out if he knew who I was. Um, And then the second part, as we moved through the day, it would be uh, making sure he was somewhat occupied as best we could, giving him chores around the house while I continued to do my work, make sure he had good meals. And then he would want to go for a drive. And we would just spend hours driving around, looking at everything. And this was during COVID. So I, at least I had the time to do that. And then came the evening. And the evening was really tough because that's when sundowning starts. And that's when he just starts randomly pacing through the house and going in and out of doors and slamming them. Uh, taking off his pants, not wanting to put them back on, refusing to take his medication. And then you just kind of hold your breath and pray to get through that until he finally goes to sleep. And unfortunately, in the fall of 2020 is when he stopped sleeping. And that meant that we were all up all the time. And that was extraordinarily difficult. So we moved from 
him being very unpredictable and having to hide knives and having to um, baby proof, child proof the whole place and cover up the mirrors to just not sleeping at night, uh, worried about him falling over the stairs, walking out into traffic and um, wondering what was going to happen. I mean, we were, I was on three hours sleep average for about seven months. And there were times as well when you and your sons feared for your safety. Um, how did you get through that? Well, that was frequently. And that, that, that was over a period of about three years, to be honest. It's, it, was, um, it was terrifying. And my sons, unfortunately, had to step into the role of being a, a protector. And at first, they were much, Bruce is big. He's 6'2", 250. And my kids were small. But as they became young men, they started to get bigger. They didn't fill out. They're skinny as can be, but they're tall. And they think that they can take on this big man with a lot of anger and it's, they can't. So that would be the warning. I would just say, we're all leaving the house. This is the drill. Always have your car keys with you. Always have your cell phone with you. If you need to leave the house, just leave the house, get out and go somewhere else. And don't worry about if he's okay or not okay. Don't reason with them. Go into another room, lock the door. I put I put um, these devices, which would prevent Bruce from walking into my son's rooms because that could be their refuge of where they would be safe. Um, so that, those are the kinds of conversations we had. And that, that was about a year, a year in total. That's the way we lived. One of my youngest, my youngest son, Billy, actually had to move his bedroom to our basement because Bruce would just wander in there in the middle of the night and to bother him. Now, you've been incredibly candid about living on the front lines of this of this disease, of this ruthless disease as a caregiver. Um, you even posted a video on social media at one point to really paint a picture of what this looks like firsthand. Why is sharing your family's story important to you? It's important to me because of the impact it makes. I think the first time I shared, Leanne, I was trying to let people know that this was a dangerous situation and that I was really scared. And the response was families reaching out to me and saying, I'm going through this now, or I've gone through this already. And discussions opening up about what are you doing in this case and what is happening. And that's where I first learned about a behavioral support unit like at Baycrest. And I first learned that calling 911 is the best thing that you could possibly do when you're put into situations like that and that you must do it. So if I hadn't posted on social, I wouldn't have gotten that free advice from people who are, are truly, you know, worried about me and worried about what's happening in the house. And um, I wouldn't have called 911 on that January 1st and one of us could be seriously injured. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. Our guest today is Lisa Raitt, former politician, mom of two, businesswoman, and caregiver for her husband. Remember, you can learn more about our guests, giveaways, and much more on whereparentstalk.com. Is there anything else, looking back on it now, um, with everything that you've gone through, with everything that you now have as knowledge about this disease and how it works, Anything that could have helped you as a caregiver manage this disease back then when you were afraid and scared for your children? I think I wish I had called for help sooner. You know, we called, I called 911 and I, was in, I, was, I wasn't even embarrassed. 
I was hesitant because I didn't think that we deserved to have the help. And that was in May of 2019, uh, 2020, when I first called 911. And we went to the hospital and they discharged him into my care. I think at that point in time, I should have said, I can't take him home because I'm, I'm afraid for, for my safety. Uh, but I didn't know I could say that. That was something that was brought to my attention after I posted the video of him um, having one of his meltdowns in the middle of the night and, and being threatening towards me. Are there any support strategies that you would suggest to families who may be at the start of this journey? And especially if there is violent behavior involved at some point? Take it seriously. Um, everybody hopes that you're not the family that's going to have to deal with aggressive behaviors or, or violent behaviors, but you just never know if it's going to happen and the change can come in a flash. So when they say to you, remove the weapons in your kitchen, remove the weapons in your kitchen before it comes too late. Uh, there are oftentimes cases that you hear in the community about a spouse who has been severely damaged or or even killed by their spouse with dementia, and they don't know what they're doing, but they they didn't take it seriously enough at the time. So take it seriously that this is something that could possibly happen. And the other support, Leanne, is you need to get in touch with people who are going through the same thing you're going through or have gone through it already. And I highly recommend getting involved with a support group that meets virtually on the phone. Once a month doesn't cut it. You got to find something that does once a week through the Alzheimer's Society or Hilarity for Charity or any of those local kinds of things, especially people who live in more rural areas. Not all of us live in Toronto. I don't live in Toronto. I live in Moffitt, which has no Alzheimer's supports in Milton at all. And as a result, I had to go to virtual help. And boy, I still do it every Thursday night for an hour and a half. And it is a lifesaver for me. And at what point were you when you sought out and then started to belong to this support group? It was right after I called the, I called 911 the first time in May of 2020 when he was very violent. And I just happened to see uh, an ad on Twitter or Facebook or something for something called Hilarity for Charity that said, we have these support groups. And on a whim, I sent in an application and then I got the call back. And I was hesitant about the first time I went to the call. But um, soon enough, when I heard everybody else's story, I realized I needed to be there. And they share they share advice. Like they said, okay, Lisa, this is what you need to do in this case. And now I'm more senior and I share my advice with the new people that come into the group. And looking back, is that something that you wish that you would have done earlier? And that is outreach to a support group? Because from what you've described, you were, you were basically flying solo there for at least four or five years before you joined that group. Yep. And pride goes before a folly. And that is such a good question. I'm glad you asked me it because I am far enough along to know that I was so arrogant about this disease, thinking that I could handle anything because after all, I'm well-educated and, and I'm privileged and I can handle anything that comes my way. I don't need anybody's help. And then I realized I, I would have been so much better off if I had found this group two years before, because I look at the folks in my group now and they are two years away from being where I am now. And they're benefiting from all this information, even knowing what's coming down the pipe for them. And yeah, I totally wish I had done it earlier. 
but it needs to be frequent. It can't be a monthly meeting with your spouse in a room, having coffee with other spouses. You need something specifically for the caregiver of young onset Alzheimer's. We are a different breed, but there's a lot of us out there judging by the DMs that I get whenever I do an interview like this. Now, we've talked a a bit about your sons. They're now 20 and 17 years old. You know, it's safe to say that in many ways they've had to grow up fast watching this all unfold in front of them. Could you describe the impact of this disease on your boys five years later? Well, both have made life decisions based upon the fact that they really can't go far away from me. So my older son decided to go to McMaster University. And when Bruce really started becoming violent, he just moved home and he was here. He didn't want me to be alone. He was afraid of me being alone. And that was around the around December, November of 2020, when it really was extremely dangerous. And I did need him to protect me. I mean, that's the problem. Your son's become your protector against your spouse. And it's it's just a terrible role for them to be in. But they understood why we were there. Um, but certainly it was it was difficult. And my younger guy is making the same kind of life decision now. He would love to go to UBC. And then he looks at me and and he says, but I can't be five hours away, mom. I said, no, you can't, bud. So he's going to pick somewhere in Ontario or maybe Miguel as the place that he's going to further his education because they can't be far away from me in case something happens. They are my support team and they know that. So they have had to grow up, but I'll give them credit, Leanne. They were never embarrassed of Bruce. They brought their friends to the house. They brought their girlfriends to the house. They, they weren't shy and they didn't let stigma get to them. Everybody knows in their peer groups, what is going on? Billy has sleepovers with his friends and JC brought his girlfriend around. So they, um, they are very well adjusted in terms of understanding and, and seeing dementia and helping those who are in danger or in, in a harm's way. Lisa, what message would you like to leave for caregivers and families struggling to cope with dementia of this kind? You can't do it yourself. Um, there, there has to be a line that you say to yourself, I can't cross that line. And for me, it was two things. It was not being able to sleep through the night and not having a care, you know, extra support to allow you to sleep through the night. And the, the second one is incontinence. And those are things that nobody likes talking about. But the reality is, is that if you're trying to work full time, which I have to do to bring money into the house for my family, because I am now the only breadwinner in the house and you lose that in your spouse in their prime earning years, suddenly they're no longer part of the payroll and you have to be able to work and you have to have the time. And both of those things, incontinence and lack of sleep are things that can cause you to just not be present at work and and not even be able to go to work and or be there for your kids or or go to their sporting events and and no amount of help um, that you receive from the Lynn in terms of extra care is going to be able to to cover off 24-7. And I would just encourage people to recognize your line. And when you get to that line, make sure that you've made your application and to, to give your loved one the best care they can get, which is within a long-term care home. Lisa Ray, we appreciate your openness and candor in discussing your journey with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leanne. 
That is it for this edition of Where Parents Talk. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.